Uh, when I was, yeah, Daddy's coming back. So um, when I was 23 years old, I was, at the time, I was 23, and I was a youth pastor on the island of Oahu in Hawaii, and I was working with a bunch of high school kids, and it quickly dawned on me that I really didn't have a clue what I was doing, and I didn't really know what I was talking about, because I was only 23 years old, no offense to you 23-year-olds, but uh, I hadn't studied heaps, and they were asking me lots of questions, and I'd kind of go, uh, I don't, I don't know. And I'm thinking, well, hold on, a, hold on a tick. Don't they actually pay me to kind of have somewhat of an answer from the Bible? I should probably get this sorted. Um, so there wasn't, on the island, there wasn't any Bible colleges or seminaries. Um, so what I did was I just started researching guys on the island who went to a reputable seminary uh, or Bible college. And I, and I found one guy who went to a, a, a good seminary, and he was an older bloke, and he had spent actually most of his lifetime lecturing and, and teaching. Uh, there used to actually be a small Bible college there. It, it shut down, but he used to actually teach at this Bible college there on Oahu. And so I just rang him out of the blue. And I said, hey, mate, you know, called the church office there. You don't know me from a bar soap but can we have a coffee? And he's like, yeah, sure. So the day arrives. I've got a Bible, 23 years old, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, and here comes this car, and up walks this bloke. He's probably, he's super tall. I don't know how tall he is. Wide hair, pants pulled up like Steve Urkel, <laughs> and, and he's like, and he talks like this, like, hi there, Brother Rob. I'm pretty good at impersonating, and trust me, that's exactly how there. And I was like, oh, Rick, it's nice to meet you. And, and basically, I just explained to him, I said, look, I, I don't have any formal training. I'm hoping to get that someday, but right now, I just, I need to learn. And he's like, well, here's what we're going to do. You need to come to my house every Wednesday at 6 a.m., and we are going to study systematic theology together. And I was like, Systemic system, what? What the system? Sister, have you never read Balvink, brother? And I'm like, Balvink? Who? And he goes, Well, why don't we start with a very simple introduction? Wayne Grudem's systematic theology. And I was like, Where do I get that? This is before Amazon, right? You know, where do I? And I, he's like, Probably won't have it at the local bookstore, but you can try. So I went to the local bookstore and I picked up. This book right here, this is actually this, it's falling apart now, but this, this, this is the exact book that I picked up, Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. And, um, and it was cool because I started meeting with Rick every Wednesday at 6 a.m. And I got to tell you that my heart was enlightened to the ninth degree. The study of God was never simply, like, like this book, it's a fatty book, it was never just like, oh cool, I can learn a bunch of information. Do you understand? The study of God was never simply to get information, it was to know God and to know Him truly. Not by experience, not by a word of the Lord 
or but some nut job down the street, whatever he says or she says, but to know God and to know him truly as he's revealed himself in Scripture. And listen, that really revolutionized my life. I kid you not. I didn't have categories for, okay, well, how is the church supposed to work? What's, how is preaching supposed to happen? How are we supposed to think about what God is doing in history? What, why do we sing these songs? Why do we say these things? Why do we, do you understand? And, and not only that, but it, it, April can testify to this. It actually changed the way that I loved her, led her, understood my job, role as the spiritual head. Yes, Wayne Grudem talks about that. Understood the, the role of men and women in the church. All those things were just like exploding onto my mind. I never even thought. And so April can testify to this, albeit I'm an imperfect husband, but I, I was... I was I was becoming more and more like Jesus in the way that I was treating her and, and, and the goals that I was setting for our family. And it, it, it honestly, studying the nature and the character of God revolutionized the way that I lived. I, I would not be where I'm at today if it wasn't for like kickstarting it through this exact study, thinking of who God is, having a high view of God. And that that really is one of the goals that the elders of this church have for everyone here. That's our prayer, that this church would have a high view of God. That's why we're doing this series called God Is. That you would capture during this series a lofty, majestic high and exalted view of God, and that would then shape the way that you live. Shape the way that you work your job and do your marriage, lead your kids. So whatever stage of life God has you in. So today, as we continue on in this series called God Is... We're going to unpack one that is critical, and that is this. God is unchanging. God is unchanging. Now, this series will be filled, if you haven't figured it out already, will be filled with declarative statements. So, we just went through 1 Samuel... That's a great, I had a great time going through that. And there's a narrative there, right? This is a topical series where we're taking a topic that's a truth about God and we're looking at various texts and there's a lot of declarative statements. God is unchanging, okay? Here's one. So, God is unchangeable in his character and in all of his ways. God is unchangeable in his character and in all of his ways. God is fixed in who he is. He is unalterable. You know, sometimes when you get an outfit that doesn't fit and you take it to the tailor and they, they alter it, right, to get it suited properly. 
God is unalterable. He doesn't need alteration. He does not change. Now, some of you are like, eh, all right, it makes sense. I, I don't know if I disagree with that. I, I just don't see how that really lands anywhere or even in some of the songs I like to sing or, or whatever. Well, you may not have realized this, but many of you would have already sung these truths through the hymn, Immortal Invisible. How about this? Immortal, invisible, God only wise, in light inaccessible, hid from our eyes. I'm tempted to sing it, most blessed, most glorious, right? The ancient, when I met with Rick, we'd always sing a hymn afterwards. I didn't even know the rhythm of a hymn. He'd be like, let's sing it. And I'd be like, most blessed, how do I read a hymn? And he would teach me these things. Most blessed, most glorious, the ancient of days. Listen, it later says this, we blossom and flourish as leaves on the tree and wither and perish, but not changeth thee. Can you hear that? That's what we're going to camp out on this morning. That God is unchanging. Here's how that's going to unfold. First, we're going to look at this idea that God is unchanging through images, actually. Uh, scripture gives these metaphors, these images, these pictures to communicate that God is light, God is a rock that, that's unchanging. When you think of a rock, I'm, you ever heard like, you know, if rocks could speak or if the walls could talk or whatever, you know? Um, there's rocks today that are sitting around here that will all be gone and they'll still be kind of there. Some of them will eventually crum crumble and become dust and all that stuff. But there'll be rocks that are cruising around here that, not cruising, they'll just stationary. And, um, and, and we'll all be gone and they'll still be there, right? God, God is unchangeable. He's, he's a rock. He's light. We'll, we'll look at those images those, that Scripture uses to communicate this truth about God's unchangeableness. So that's, that's the first bit of the sermon. The second bit is we'll look how God is unchanging in his ways, meaning who he is. God is unchanging in his word, what he said, and God is unchanging in his plan, in his will. So first images, then God is unchanging in his ways, in his word, and in his will. Happy with that? All right. Why don't we look to the Lord and pray? And then we'll jump right into it. Gracious God, we come to you as people who are always changing. People who are really uh, in need of change when it comes to godliness. So we pray that this time wouldn't be wasted. We pray that the truths that we learn would rivet our hearts and change us. For your glory's sake, in Christ's name, amen. So if you happen to be a fly on the wall in the Jenner house, um, it, it's all, <laughs> there's a lot of noise in our house. Um, but uh, one, of the, one of the things that if, if you were a fly on the wall in the Jenner house is you'd, you'd hear Disney songs always playing throughout our house. Uh, for some time, a favorite soundtrack was the soundtrack of Pocahontas. And um, I know this might sound funny, but there's a line 
that Pocahontas sings, which really captures the idea of change or the nature of change. You want to hear it? I'm not going to sing it. I'm tempted, but I'm not going to sing it. It's a song just around the river bend. You guys familiar with that? Yeah. So she says, quote, I'm going to quote Pocahontas. What I love most about rivers is you can't step in the same river twice. The water's always changing, always flowing. That is very true. By the time that you take your second step into a river, the river has changed. The water you enter then is different from the water that you entered with your first step because of the current, right? The water is always moving. And not only is the river itself moving in terms of water, but unperceived by us in microscopic terms, there are other changes taking place in that river as well. Can't step in the same river twice. Man, Pocahontas, good on you. You are like an amazing philosopher, right? All right, well, sorry to burst your bubble. Another line from a Disney movie. Sorry to burst your bubble, but that actually wasn't Pocahontas. That was a Greek philosopher named Heraclitus. And what did Heraclitus teach? Well, he taught that everything we see in the world is undergoing change. That's true. Today's hot. A few months ago, it was cold. Seasons change. People change. Many of you aren't young 20-year-olds anymore. Your bodies get old and decay. And we feel the pains in our own limbs and muscles, do we not? And eventually, eventually we die. People come, they live, they die. We see change happen all the time. It's everywhere around us. It, it pervades our world. But not so with God. Nigel, can you take that distracting? Or, or just Rob, sorry. That is like, I don't know how anyone's going to concentrate. Thank you. Yeah, it's like Pocahontas with the Heraclitus face on it. Um, so, thanks, Rob. Um, God doesn't change, though. God, listen, God is never in the process of change. That, that's actually a contradiction in terms. You with me? Um, for God to be changeable is, well, it's, it defies logic, actually. Now, We'll come back to that, but as I advertised, there's a lot of metaphors, images that paint this idea of God being unchangeable. So let's look at a few. Um, and, and what do I mean by that? What, what, well, when some, we do that today. When, when I, because you're like, well, what do you mean, images and meta? Okay, well, people, you might not realize this, but people do this all the time. Uh, they, they use a, an image to describe someone's personality. That person's as cold as ice, right? Doesn't mean if you're like, oh, it just, it's, right? Um, he's as stubborn as a rusty nail, as a mule, right? She's like a breath of fresh air. Those are images people use to, to capture a characteristic about someone. The Bible does this and says, God is rock. That's going to be our first one. God is a rock. And I, I, and I don't mean like a literal stone, right? But a massive cliff or mountain. That's the image that we get of God 
as a rock. As mentioned, I used to live in Hawaii, and while there, uh, there were these. I, I lived in this little granny flat, and outside of our window, you could see this mountain range called the Ko'olaos that shot up 940-something meters into the air. I kid you not, like straight up, it just goes, poof, the Ko'olau mountain range, almost a kilometer up and in the sky. And when you would just sit there, no, no matter how much you looked at them, you'd always feel tiny in comparison. It was very daunting because these mountains, what do they represent? Yeah, that's the, that's the little area I lived in. That's the suburb I lived in right there. Um, what are those mountains? They, met, they represent strength and stability. That's the type of image the Bible uses to describe God as a rock. Moses said this, the rock, his way is perfect. For all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity. Just and upright is he. God is the rock who does not change. He always remains, and he always remains powerful and faithful. King David knew this firsthand, did he not? Think about his nemesis. Think about psychopath Saul, always hunting him down, trying to kill him, right? King Saul wanted him dead. And so David, what does he do? He's often fleeing to, well, actually for 10 years of his life, he's living in a different caves. Remember that? He's in the heart of some rock fortress because these, these places were, they were safe spaces. They were havens of stability and security. But, but here's, here's the key, though. It's not about the location itself. Caves can collapse. We know that. Rocks eventually crumble into dust. But God, as the true rock, never will. That's why after David was delivered from his enemies, he could sing this. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge. Or in the Psalms, uh, we see David addressing God as his rock, as his source and assurance of salvation. Psalm 62, he alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. A few verses later, he says, on God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. That's the key. Do you see how David's understanding of God as his rock shapes the way that he encounters difficulties? David's life, we know this, we read about this, it had, it had it, it, its ups and downs. But he knew that God was unchanging. He is firm and secure. He is always there. The world around him could be giving way, but God remains the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is never fluctuating, never vacillating, always the same. Like the Sovereign Grace song says, we sing this a lot here, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer, strong defender of my weary heart, my soul to fight the cruel deceiver and my shield against his hateful darts. The Lord is an unbreakable fortress to those who trust in him.
Now, let me share another image that portrays God's unchangingness. God is light. That's, the Bible tells us that God is light, and in Him there's no darkness at all, right? Uh, James writes to persecuted Christians. Right, imagine, someone, imagine you knew someone that lost their home, their job, some, some of their family members were killed. What would you say to such a person? Well, James writes and he says, every good and perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does, listen, does not change like shifting shadows. Interesting language there, isn't it? What's he saying to these persecuted Christians? Well, he's talking about the cycles of day and night, which we witness every 24 hours. During the day, it's sunny, but when night falls, it's dark. It's dark and there's no shadows. Shadows there in the day, bigger in the afternoon, gone by night. My kids love shadows. This week we're at Copa, and Ellie, her hat got wet, and in the shadow it looked like Vader's head. And she's like, Dad, look at this. Like, and it did. It, was, it looked legit. It looked, like, it looked like Vader's head. I don't have a picture of it. Right? But, you know, in the middle of the day, your, your shadow, you know, it's, it's quite, it's very small, right? Because the sun's rays are directly over your head. But as the sun moves toward the horizon, your shadow shifts and grows in size, you know? In the afternoon, your shadow becomes quite big. It's always changing. God, however, has no shadow, nor is he like a shadow that continually turns and shifts. He is pure and unchanging light. Or as Thomas Watson put it, there is no eclipse to his brightness, which is critical for you to remember. That is critical for you to remember because when life kicks you in the teeth and this year in 2023, it will. You're going to get kicked in the teeth this year. Someone is going to hurt you badly. You're going to in inherit some kind of bug or virus. By the way, I don't have the power to speak this over. That's nonsense. If you want to find churches like that, you can go to find those wonky places. We've given a sermon on that too, by the way, way back when. You're going to get kicked in the teeth this year. Someone's going to break your heart. Someone's going to hurt you. You're going to get fired from your job. I don't want any things to happen to you. I don't want stuff to happen to me. You're going to be really disappointed with people. Feeling good? But you know that's, you, come on. You Aussies are, you Aussies are cynical people. You, 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 know that, you, know this, you know this is true. You know this is life, right? Come on. So what are you going to do? What are you going to do in that moment? Well, what do you do when you're side-blinded by suffering that doesn't seem to ease up? Well, in those moments, what's it tempting to do? What is our nat natural inclination? Oh, come on, God. <sighs> what are you doing? Right? I know you're in church, but you've thought that way. What are you doing? And you may not say it out loud, but you almost begin to wonder in your moment of suffering if God has a dark side to him. Perhaps he's got a few shades of evil. And he's sort of messing with you. Listen, friend, 
This is why we need this picture of God as pure and unchangeable light fixed in our minds and rooted in our hearts. Because the truth is, trials and temptations may obscure your view of God's glory as clouds obscure the light of day, but God remains the unchanging sun of holiness. He's actually ordained that trial that you're suffering in right now. He's planned it. He's given it to you. These trials, as painful as they might be, are meant to shape you into the image of his son. That's why James writes to these persecuted Christians. They've copped it much harder than anyone here. Much harder than anyone here. And what does he say? Oh, God wants to help you, but he can't. No, he doesn't give any nonsense like that. He says, consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. Because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete. You can almost hear them, again, these persecuted Christians that James is writing to going, oh, come on. Is God, this is so, this is too much to bear. But that's why he says, look, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Instead, we need to recognize that every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth. You see, that's the basis. You can trust God to remain who He is, which is always good and loving and compassionate and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And you can trust that this God always, always has His perfect plan and ultimately your good in mind because He is unchanging, even if it's not the plan you wanted. When I was a kid, I used to watch Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles back in the 90s. It was cool. They ruined it with these recent movies, but it, the cartoons were cool. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, it was these little turtles that they mutated into ninjas. And they were named after Renaissance painters, right? And... Um, and these, you know, they were, prior to mutating, they were, they were just dumb little, like, turtles, right? You know, that big or whatever. But they mutated. And, you know, they take on this, when the evil shredder attacks, you know, these turtle boys don't cut them no slack, you know, and, 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 and so on, right? And, and um, but, but they had to change. They, they had to become these ninjas, they had to mutate. Whereas God is Im immutable. You with me? God is immutable. God is immutable in his ways and in his 
word and in his will. So let's unpack that now. God is immutable. There's your $2 word for the morning. In his ways, his word, and his will. When I say his ways, what I really mean is his nature. Basically, the character of God never alters in the slightest degree. For example, uh, the book of Malachi was written during a time when Israel's priests were sacrificing animals. You're like, okay, well, Israel's priests, isn't that their job? Don't, they, don't Israel's priests and the nation of Israel, don't they sacrifice animals? That's what they do. Yeah, but not handicapped, lame, gimpy ones. They're supposed to give the best. But instead, they're giving the, the rejects. They're bringing these gimpy animals as a sacrifice. And to make matters worse, well, word has gotten out to the surrounding nations that God's people are actually rubbing His name in the mud. Nevertheless, the Lord remains steadfast and patient with them, even sending them messengers. That's what Malachi's name means, messenger of God. Even sending them messengers to steer them back on track. Nevertheless, they still slide into unfaithfulness and apathy. Well, something's got to give. You would think that the Lord would say, all right, I've had it. Enough is enough. And he snuffs them out. But what he says in chapter 3 through Malachi is remarkable. Listen to this. For I, the Lord, do not what? Change. Therefore, O children of Jacob, they're not consumed. You see, God's faithfulness stems from His unchanging nature. He does not modify who He is. He treats His people the same because it stems from who He is. Can you imagine if that weren't the case? What if the Lord was like one of the Greek mythology gods? What if God was like one of the Roman gods? These gods had weaknesses and frequent moral failures, even petty rivalries. They have mood swings. They can become moody and decide to take it out on you one day. What if God was like that? Can you imagine? As I said earlier, when I met with this guy Rick and we studied this book, he talks about the importance of God's unchangeableness. And I'm going to read you a lengthy quote. And you don't need to pull out your phone and try to take pictures of the PowerPoint or something like that because I printed them out. And Selah, honey, can you pass them out like last time? Like, I'll give them to you. But I, I, have, I have them in the back. and I'll give them to my daughter and she can give you guys this quote so you can take it home with you. But it'll shoot up here on the screen. Listen to the, what Wayne Grudem talks about, the importance of God's unchangeableness. At first, it may not seem very important to us to affirm God's unchangeableness. Okay, fair enough, right? You see what he says there? It may not seem all that important. I mean, the idea is so abstract that we may not immediately realize its significance. Maybe you're kind of sitting in that space right now. I mean, come on. So is, is, is it really that important? that big of a deal? But, Wayne says, if 
we stop for a moment to imagine what it would be like if God could change. The importance of this doctrine becomes more clear. For example, if God could change in His being, perfections, purposes, or promises, then any change would be either for the better or for the worse. But if God changed for the better, then He was not the best possible being when we first trusted Him. And how could we be sure that He is the best possible being now? But if God could change for the worse in His very being, then what kind of God might He become? Might He become, for instance, a little bit evil rather than wholly good? And if He could become a little bit evil, then how do we know He could not change to become largely evil or wholly evil? And there would not be one thing we could do about it, for He's so much more powerful than we are. Thus, the idea that God could change leads to the horrible possibility that thousands of years from now, we might come to live forever in a universe dominated by a holy, evil, omnipotent God. Imagine that. <laughs> it is hard to imagine any thought more terrifying. How could we ever trust such a God who could change? How could we ever commit our lives to Him? Moreover, if God could change with regard to His purposes, then even though when the Bible was written, He promised that Jesus would come back to rule over a new heaven and a new earth, he has perhaps abandoned that plan now, and thus our hope in Jesus' return is in vain. Or if God could change regard to His promises, then how could we trust Him completely for eternal life? Or for anything else, the Bible says. Maybe when the Bible is written, He promised forgiveness of sins and eternal life to those who trust in Christ, but God can change. Perhaps He has changed His mind on those promises now. How could we be sure? Or perhaps His omnipotence will change someday so that even though he wants to keep his promises, he will no longer be able to do so. A little reflection like this shows how absolutely important the doctrine of God's unchangeableness is. If God is not unchanging, then the whole basis of our faith begins to fall apart and our understanding of the universe begins to unravel. This is because our faith and hope and knowledge all ultimately depend on a person who is infinitely worthy of trust because he is absolutely and eternally unchanging in his beings, perfections, purposes, and promises. Amen. You know, Grudem didn't make that up. He's studying the Bible. Come with me to Psalms. Look at the psalmist talks like, all the psalmist talks like this, but particularly Psalm 102 that Kim read for us. When the author penned this psalm, he was suffering and lonely. Look at Psalm 102. Psalm 102. He's pouring his heart out before the Lord because his life was passing away like a shadow. And things weren't looking so good for his people either. But he is confident that God will have mercy and show his glory to the world when he builds up his people. I mean, is that just being naive? How could this psalmist have confidence? I mean, things are dark and gloomy. I mean, if you're listening to the language when Kim was reading, it's, it's bad, right? He's like an owl, like he's, he's out in the desert, he's parched, he's, he's, he's crying, he's, it's, it's, it's not good, and, and, and the situation with his people's worse. And so how could he have this confidence that all of a sudden things are going to turn around? How does he arrive at such a conclusion? Well, he leans on nothing less than God's unchanging character. Psalm 102, verse 25. 
Look at verse 25. Of old you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. You hear that? Uh, the most stable objects we can see in this world, the ground beneath our feet or the sky above our heads, change, decay, and ultimately we will be destroyed. But the Creator is the same God, same God who created the world and will remain the same God when the world is no more. That's why the psalmist concludes in verse 28, look what he says, the children of your servants shall dwell secure, their offspring shall be established before you. You see, the unchangeableness of God's being provides stability because he cannot fail to do what he has promised. Not only is he unchanging in his ways, he's unchanging in his word. He's unchanging in his word. Which, think about this. Only God could be unchanging in his word. For a human and their own assessment of the world and their own personality be unchanging, that's just a stubborn person, right? God is not stubborn. He is perfect. So we don't want God to change in his word. What God has spoken is etched in stone, written with a pin of iron. God's word can never be altered. Uh, the longest chapter in the Bible is a psalm that has 176 verses, which describes the perfections of the word of God. Psalm 19 stands as a testimony to the unchangeable nature of God's word. In verse 89 of this chapter, it states this, Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. You hear that? Throughout all of the ages to come, God's word is fixed. It is firm. Verse 160, the sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Listen to what Jesus said in Luke 16. It is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Is that not amazing? <laughs> it's like Jesus said it would be easier for the whole universe to go out of existence than for just one little tiny letter to fail to be accomplished and to come to pass. This all testifies to the eternality of God's word. He will never have to take a word back. For every word that proceeds from his mouth is pure, unadulterated truth. Guys, you can bank your entire life on that. By the way, if you're a Christian, you are. What assurance do you have of salvation? Well, uh, uh, John 3, 16, that's God's word. I died, God's word. Do you understand? We're the people banking our entire eternal destiny on what God has said. And what God has said stands. We can wake up tomorrow morning and know for certain that what God has said yesterday or a thousand years ago will be true for all time. Now, it doesn't take much, though, think about this, 
when you look around our culture today to see how things rapidly change and shift, particularly when it comes to issues of gender, sexuality, etc. I mean, 10 years ago, even the trans movement, that was just, that would be crazy talk. People would be like, what are you saying? But today it's just normal. That's just normal. Things shift, they change. I mean, honestly, even in the last 10 years, things have shifted massively. Some people have titled it a moral revolution. I'd agree with that. But you know, God has not changed his standard of ethics. God has not changed his word. It is the same for every generation, for every country, for every age, because it is always the same. His standard for the family is forever the same. His standard for gender, sexuality, morality is forever the same. I don't care what someone calls themselves. I don't care how someone subjectively identifies who they are or what, who they want to marry. God's word has been etched with a pin of iron and it remains forever. His word never changes. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Not only is God unchanging in the perfections of his nature and in his ways and in his word, but listen, God is immutable in his will, in the purposes of his heart. God is unchanging in his ways, in his word, and lastly, in his will. Now, in the Old Testament, in the book of Numbers, there's a, and I, I would just encourage you to read it. Maybe you can go this afternoon and read through Numbers uh, 22, 23, 24. I, just those chapters. You can start in Numbers 20. But there's just a, I mean, I'm not making this up. Donkeys are speaking. This isn't Shrek, but like God is speaking through donkeys. There's this king named Balak who hates the nation of Israel, and he hires this thug, sort of you can buy him at a price, prophet named Balaam, and he says, Balaam, I want you to curse the nation of Israel, and so on and so forth. Again, worth reading. Pretty amazing stuff. But here's what's amazing. In the end, Balaam found himself compelled to say this. God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man, that he should change his mind. He has said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? Do you see the contrast between God's nature and man's? Uh, we know that people are inconsistent and unreliable, right? They might promise one thing, yet do something else, or just straight up lie to us. But God is nothing like this. He doesn't lie or change his mind. And now, given the context of the book of Numbers, that's, that's nothing short of incredible. I mean, the book of Numbers doesn't paint a flattering picture of Israel. Yet despite this, God determined to bless them. Even their sins wouldn't change his plans for them. Because here's the deal. Once God has determined that he will bring something about, his purposes is un changing. It will be done. Isaiah 46. Listen to this. This is airtight. I am God and there is no other. 
I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Well, maybe it's going to... Nah, I think it's pretty clear. <laughs> that's, that's, pretty, that's pretty clear. God is unchanging. God is unchanging. We might change, but God is unchanging in who he is and what he says and in his will and accomplishing that. Isn't that great news? That, I mean, think about this. Philippians 1.6. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Feel like you've had a bad week and you, the whole thing, your whole faith's going to implode? Bake on God's promises. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. I don't, I'm not really worthy of it. Welcome to the club. Christ is the one. God Almighty, from eternity past, set his love on you before you were ever born. Now look at language here. Things not yet done. We only love him because he first what? Loved us. Is there any reason you're a Christian other than God's sovereign grace? No. So what, what, what kind of hope can I have? None other than looking to Christ alone and knowing that he who began a work in you will carry it on to completion until his second coming or until he takes you home. But I feel so, man, I, I, you don't know my week, Rob. I did. If you're turning from sin and the Lord is working in your life in that way, hey, guess what? Yes, don't stay in that sin. Turn from it, repent. But the one who began a good work in you Carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. You know, in a courtroom, you know, when they make you, you know, in the movies, they used to make, you know, place your hand on the Bible. Do you swear to tell the whole truth, the whole, you know, the truth, and so help you God, right? I mean, if, if you were to make God do that, what else could he do but I guess put his hand on his own self? Yes. Because what I say is true, and it won't be changed because of who I am. That's the God we look to. What an encouraging truth. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you again for this opportunity to study your word, to reflect on your character. We praise you that you are unchanging. The world around us may give way. Lord, our, we may feel like we've fallen back into that old sin that we thought we whooped a long time ago, but we can hide ourselves in you because you are our rock of ages. We thank you that your grace never runs out. Our sins are many. Your mercies are more. We thank you for that, Lord. In Christ's name, amen.